Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hey guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I talk about the case for value stock investing. Most systematic value investing strategies have underperformed the broader market over the past decade, but there are a few things that should give today's value investors some confidence that value can still work in the future. Questions like, has this ever happened before? Why value works in the first place? And is value really cheap relative to growth versus other times in history? We try to make the case for long-term value investing, but we clearly admit that any turn is impossible to time. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoy the discussion. All right, today we're going to talk about um, the case for value stock investing. And this is based largely on an article you wrote uh, recently. And what was, what was interesting about the way you, you introduced this was one of your most popular articles that you've ever written. So I think at this point, you've probably written about 100 articles. I've written about maybe 40 or 50 um, on a whole wide range of topics, but and we track this, the, the the traffic that we get on these articles pretty closely because we want to see how many page views and how popular they are. And what's interesting is one of the most popular articles you ever wrote was actually an argument on the case against value investing, which is not something you actually believe in, but you were trying to look at the other side of the argument and make the case against value, and somehow that you know, got picked up and almost kind of went a little viral, which I think is just kind of funny because it's not really what you believe in, but you're trying to make the case of the other side. Yeah, one of the things I've been trying to do in my articles is I've been trying to take all the strongly held beliefs I have and challenge them. And to be honest, I've probably gone a little bit too far. I seem to be writing articles left and right now about all these challenging, all these things I believe. But I didn't want to let it stand that my most read article of all time, and it still is, by the way, because this this one in favor of it was not nearly as widely read, but I didn't want to let it stand that I only had an article out there, you know, challenging my beliefs about value investing. I wanted to write the other side of it because ultimately, even after considering all the arguments against value, the other side of it is still what I believe. And so I wanted to write an article where I made the case in favor of value stocks and why I think, first of all, why I think they work over the long run, but also why I think now is a unique opportunity uh, to invest in value stocks. So, you know, for at least for a long-term investor who's not concerned about what's going to happen in the next six months or the next year or the next two years, I think now is probably a very good long opportunity, uh, long-term opportunity for value. So I wanted to make that case since I had already made the other one. I wanted to make the one I actually believe. And we'll get into those points um, about why, uh, you know, value investing hopefully will work in the future. But I think it's a good, it's a good quality. It's something Charlie Munger talks about to be able to, you know, look at the other side of the argument and have, you know, even a deeper understanding of of what the other side might be, even if you don't agree with it, than than the other people. So to ha- his point is to have an opinion on something, you've got to be able to understand and articulate the other side of the argument and the position. So that's something that Munger actually talks about, and you've done a pretty good job of, of challenging your beliefs with some of these articles. Um, in terms of value stocks, obviously value has been basically – Value, systematic value stock investing, so buying cheap stocks based on, um, you know, assets, price to book or price to earning or a lot of these sort of traditional value metrics, 
you know, has really been in a, a slog here for probably over a decade. I think, I think it probably goes back to 07 when this underperformance really started to show. And um, it's been a tough period for systematic value investors, so investors that are building and buying portfolios of statistically cheap stocks. Um, but to get into some of the points that you um, had in the article, you know, the case for value stocks sort of started with, you know, are value stocks cheap on a relative basis um, versus where they've been historically and other parts of the market? And I think here you kind of used um, Cliff Asnes's AQR paper as sort of a, um, a springboard. So do you want to kind of just talk about that a little bit? Yeah, as you referenced, there's, there's really two ways to look at are, are value stocks cheap. One is, are they cheap? Absolutely, which is relative to their own history. And the two, the second is, are they cheap relatively, which is relative to growth stocks. Um, and, and the point I was using in the article was relative to growth stocks, um, but we'll really talk about both of them here. The first thing is, relative to growth stocks, value stocks are probably as cheap as they've ever been, and they probably are at late 90s levels at this point. Um, you know, in, in Cliff Asnes' article, he had the percentile based on various value metrics, and he had, we're in the 100th percentile on price to book, we're in the 100th percentile on price to earnings, 99th on forward price to earnings, and on composite of factors, we're in the 100th percentile. So you can, you can argue it one way or another, if you, depending on how you play with the data, but it's hard when you're getting into the 100th percentile, it's hard to argue that value stocks are not cheap on a relative basis relative to growth stocks. And then the second part of it is, are they absolutely cheap? And that was something that didn't come for a while. But now that we're through the coronavirus and the pullback that's come with that, we, we now are at a point where value stocks are also absolutely cheap. So relative to their own history, not even considering growth stocks, value stocks are also very cheap. And so when you put those two things together, you have a situation where if value stocks are going to revert to what they've done over the long term, you have a very significant opportunity. And obviously people have arguments about whether they're going to revert or not. But if you believe that what's happened in the past is going to happen again in the future, this is probably a very good opportunity to invest in value stocks. And it's hard to use these types of things as like a timing indicator. You can't necessarily, it's not like calling the, the turn in value today, tomorrow, or even a year from now. But I think historically, when you get to these types of um, levels, you know, the future performance of value stocks as a group tends to be pretty strong looking out, you know, five to 10 years out. That's an important point, too, because many of these same indicators before the coronavirus were telling you value was very cheap. And so obviously since then, it's been a complete disaster for value. And so that, that's a really important point is this tells you nothing about what's going to happen in the six, next six months, what's going to happen in the next year, what's going to happen in the next two years. You, you can't really measure, you know, you can't really predict what's going to happen over those kinds of periods of time. So this is saying for someone who's patient, for someone who's a long-term investor, um, value probably provides a, a good long-term opportunity. But it's also important to say, you know, nobody really invests in just value. Um, for the most part, you know, most factor investors are using other factors. They're blending things together and they're doing it for this exact reason is that you can have these long periods where a factor struggles and, and you can't predict when it's going to come back. And it can be very hard to sit here and sit through what we're going through right now with value. So this is not saying, you know, it's the time to go all in on value. This is just saying for someone who uses value in their portfolio, you know, now could be an interesting time to maybe increase that exposure a little bit subject to their own tolerance to deal with, you know, these, these periods of underperformance that could go on for a longer period of time. Right. Your next point was really trying to, to get at the theory of, around why value stocks tend to outperform um, over the long term. 
and we've talked about this before, but it really comes down um, to two things, and I'll let you explain that, but the, the, what I want hopefully listeners to think about is, you know, when you think about these two things that Jack is going to explain, what he's really saying is, you know, have these things changed, and do we expect these things to change, or have they changed in, in the future? And so I think when you, when, when you hear this, it, it makes a lot of sense about the reasons why value has worked historically are still sort of present, present in the market today. So as you said, if, if you want to argue that value is broken, the first, what you need to do is you need to break the reasons why value works in the first place. So if, if I have these reasons that have been academically proven, you know, why value works in the first place, if I want to argue value is dead, then I want to argue why these things are broken. And so the two reasons you typically hear why value works, and the efficient market type people will say value works because it's risky. You're, you're making these stocks are riskier than the market in general, so I would expect a greater return or an excess return for investing in them. So the question is: Is anything going on in this period that is that would lead me to say value is less risky than it has been in the past? And you know, no matter how you measure risk, whether you measure risk as volatility, whether you measure risk as these extended periods of underperformance, no matter how you look at it, it's it's almost impossible to argue that what's going on here is a reduction in the risk of value investing. So. It would, I, I would say at least that argument still holds just as strongly as it ever has. So then the second argument is this behavioral argument, which is that people tend to systematically un- overreact to the bad news about value companies and, and systematically underprice the securities. And I actually pulled a quote from that Cliff Asness article because I think that's a, he can do a better job of explaining this than I can. And, and the quote is, besides just an inherent discomfort with randomness, part of the issue is confusion about why value works at all. It does not depend on getting big events or trends right. It does not depend on having perfect accounting information. Certainly, it does not require a lack of massive technological cha- technological change over time. No matter what the simple the situation, it simply needs investors to net overreact. Companies that are cheap need to tend to be che- a bit too cheap for whatever set of facts exists at the time, and expensive companies need to tend to be a bit too expensive. And that gets at the behavior thing. As long as that people are behaving in that way, and as long as they're mispricing securities. Value is not going to work every year, but it should work in the long term. And so when I look at these two, the risk-based and the behavior-based argument, I think they both still hold. And I think that's a strong reason to continue to believe that value will come back. Yeah, no, those are um, you know, really good points. The other thing I would say is when you think about the risk side of the equation, um, you know, a lot of these value stocks have problems. And so some of these value stocks, if you think of like the market today, what companies are going through, um, some will be able to turn the business around and investors have overdone it. Some companies are prob- probably permanently impaired. So, you know, I think sometimes investors think value stock investing is less risky. That sort of comes from the Benjamin Graham style, which is trying to find stocks that offer a margin of safety. But I think when you're buying a basket of statistically cheap stocks, you have a lot of names, let's say in a portfolio of 50 or 100 value stock names, that actually do have problems, but the ones that come out of it, you know, tend to give you more reward than the ones that you're, than, than the ones that maybe can't, can't turn it um, around. And the only other thing I wanted to say, and I'll let you comment on these two things, is that on the sort of human behavioral side, and like you uh, point out in that Asnes quote, it's not only that investors are underestimating um, value, um, but they're actually overestimating the likelihood of these growth names um, continuing to do well because what tends to happen is you get these high valuations in growth stocks um, and as more competition comes in, as profits get eroded, um, you know, those valuations come down. So that's where this growth versus value thing, you tend to 
get this um, overestimate of good times with the growth names and underestimate on the value names. I'm just kind of repeating what that as an as quote basically said, but I wanted to ha- highlight the growth side of it too. We talked about that on previous podcasts. You know, all of the everything in investing is about expectations. So it's about what are the expectations embedded in whatever I'm investing in. And so value companies are typically terrible companies. I mean, if, if you looked at one of the value models we run and we spit out the stocks we're owning right now, you're not going to feel good about any of them. But and if you know, obviously Google and Facebook, those are clearly way better companies than the companies a value portfolio is owning. But the question is, what is built in? You know, what is the multiple? What expectations are built in for that stock? And at a certain point, no matter how good a company Google is, the expectations get to be too much. And Google just can't grow at the rate that's embedded in those expectations. And these terrible value companies, it's, just, it's not as bad as people think. And that's what everything is here. It's, it's all a game of what are the expectations and what happens relative to those expectations. Because you can buy a group of terrible companies, and if those expectations are too low and they don't go bankrupt, you can do well. And you can buy a group, as you know, you've seen with the Nifty 50 in the late 90s, you can buy a group of good companies and you can still get killed because the multiple is so high that it just can't sustain. You know, the business can't grow at the rate that is required to keep that multiple. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times when people talk about value outperforming or underperforming, a lot of people tie back to the period of the late 90s when value dramatically underperformed growth. And then coming out of that period from 2000 to 2007, you know, value had a phenomenal run. Um, but, you know, that period in the late 90s, I want to say um, it was roughly from 95, 96 to 99 where growth outperformed value. And in some of those years, it was like massive. It was like, you know, value was up, I don't know, 40 or 50%. And I'm sorry, growth was up 40 or 50% and value was down, but then it it switched. But that really wasn't um, that long of of a period based on other periods we've seen historically. So one of the things that you pointed out in your article, which you were asking, you know, has this length of value underperformance happened before, you referenced the O'Shaughnessy paper, um, Value is Dead Long Live Value, and I'll let you just kind of comment on what they uncovered in that paper. When I'm looking at something like this, where we have this really extended under period of underperformance for value, I think the question you have to ask yourself is, if, if this is something that's completely unprecedented, it's never happened before, you have to be maybe more likely to say, all right, something major has changed and it might have broken value. But if I can go back to past periods and say, this happened here, this happened here, and value stocks eventually came back, then maybe I can have more confidence that it's going to come back this time. And you referenced the period from 26 to 41. That was a period of rapid technological change. Then you referenced the late 90s, also a period of rapid technological change. And so a lot of people are arguing right now, what's destroying value is rapid technological change. But if in both of those cases, what happens eventually is the companies that it, the pre-existing companies figure out how to utilize the new technology. And so I, I was actually listening to Scott Galloway's podcast uh, earlier today, and he was talking about somebody uh, somebody had emailed in a question about Kohl's because Kohl's is a great high-quality company, but Kohl's is on the wrong side a lot of, of a lot of these trends that are going on right now. And so if history is any guide, what will happen is good quality companies like Kohl's will figure out how to use technology to their advantage. I mean, Scott was talking about them launching like a subscription program or something, but whatever it is, those good quality companies will figure out how to use the technology. And then the gap, they won't be as good at using it as the the new technology companies, but the gap between them will narrow. And so they'll deserve a higher multiple than they, they would have gotten otherwise. And so eventually I think we've seen these periods of underperformance of due to technology before, 
and we came back and probably eventually these companies will figure out how to use the technology properly and you know you probably will see a revaluation upward in some of these value names that you know some of these good quality value names at least that, that stay around yeah that's a good point on Kohl's I, I was trying to look at the some of the valuation metrics I, I can't bring it up uh, this quickly but I bet it's a, probably a dirt cheap retailer you know trading in single digit uh, multiples versus like you know some of those other companies you mentioned which are you know 30 or 40 times earnings so um, it'll be interesting to just sort of you know keep track of some of these some of these uh, beaten down value stocks as they turn their business around and implement some of the technology. Um, the last point um, that you made in the article is the data isn't telling us value is dead. Um, so what were you trying to get at with that one? Well, a lot of people think if, if value is dead, what's going to happen is if I buy a basket of cheap value stocks, I am going to have a negative excess return. I'm going to underperform the market long term. But that's not really what a factor is. You know, a factor is something that explains stock returns. And so if, if my definition of a factor is something that helps me to explain long-term stock returns, then what's going to happen when the factor doesn't work anymore? What's going to happen is it's not going to explain, explain anything. So there's, you're, what you're going to get is complete randomness. And so how cheap a stock is will have nothing to do with how it performs going forward. You know, that's what you'd expect to see if value is dead. But what you're seeing is the opposite of that. You know, you're seeing like it being a negative factor effectively. You're seeing expensive being a factor. And that's not what you'd expect to see if if value was truly dead you would expect it to see have no you would expect it to have no explanatory power over stock prices at all you would ex just expect a random relationship between the two and you're not seeing that here which is another reason i think you can argue that maybe you know that argues in favor of value not being dead yeah so i think to sum it up um, you know value looks cheap on a uh, very cheap on a relative basis um, there's been other times in history where value hasn't worked. Um, we would need a, a lot longer term period of time anyways to, to say that value uh, doesn't work. And, you know, I think the reasons for value working over time, as we mentioned, the behavioral and the risk-based ones still exist. So, you know, I think you've made a pretty compelling, strong argument in the case for value here. Um, and hopefully um, folks have sort of learned a little bit from this. Um, do you have any sort of other concluding thoughts? No, just just to reiterate what we said before, you know, it's, it's important to understand that this is not, you know, this is not telling you anything about what's going to happen in the short term, you know, and also it's important to understand that value is probably not for most people because, as we talked about before, value is very volatile. Value can underperform for really long periods of time, and the more aggressive and focused, you know, portfolios of value you run, like the ones we run, the more those things go on. So value is you know probably should never be invested in on its own it's probably not for most people because they can't handle those periods of underperformance and also this is telling you nothing about what's going to happen in the next year or the next three years but understanding all of those things if you look at the data and if you look at the reasons that value works you probably do have a good long-term opportunity here for the right person who can withstand these periods of underperformance great i think that's a good way to end it so thank you guys for listening um and we'll see you next time thank you Hi guys, this is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at @jjcarbono. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it.